Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Spirit in Action is not about politics, and we certainly don't endorse politicians. But clearly there are some people and some issues that are more interesting in terms of a show wanting to raise up those engaged in world healing. And we have just such a guest today. A newly minted politician, Mark A. Newman, is making his first run for office as part of the Democratic primary for Wisconsin's 3rd District in the House of Representatives currently occupied by Ron Kind. Mark A. Newman is a pediatrician on the edge of retirement who served as a Franciscan brother for 20 years, including six of those years living and working on mission in the African country known at that time as Zaire, now called the Congo. As a world healer and a people healer, now seeking to further heal our country as a politician, Mark A. Newman now joins us via Zoom from La Crosse, Wisconsin. Mark, thank you so very much for joining me in the midst of election craziness for Spirit in Action. Thank you. I'm happy to be here, Mark. I read on your website, and this is part of what led me to interview you. I, there are plenty of politicians I don't think I would bother to interview, but because of your history as a Franciscan brother, because of your work as pediatrician, and because of the issues that you favor, which are very near and dear to my own heart and near to what Northern Spirit Radio is about, I wanted to talk to you. Because I was a Peace Corps volunteer in West Africa, in Togo, because of that time, I connected with you right away. The time spent in Zaire must have been very interesting, and I would imagine formative, but you went there already as a Franciscan brother. Is that true? Yeah, that's right. So get us started. How did you become a Franciscan brother, and which level? I assume maybe a lay brother. I mean, I understand there's multiple levels and I actually understand that there's Franciscans of Catholic and also Episcopal. Tell me about your flavor and your experience, how you got there. Well, I was born in Quincy, Illinois, which is a town not that different in size from La Crosse on the Mississippi River. Our parish was served by Franciscan brothers and priests. And there's also a college-level, university-level school there that was also served by Franciscan brothers and priests in Quincy. So I had a lot of exposure as a child to the lifestyle and to the service that the Franciscans lived and represented to me. And I fell in love with it, so to speak. I said, I want to become one of those guys. Actually, in high school, I went to the minor seminary that was still in operation back then in the 60s. But after college, I joined the Franciscan brothers. And I was given permission to prepare for transcultural mission, foreign missions, I guess you could use that language. And in that preparation, I was also given permission to study medicine. So that's how the two combined. So were you Catholic or Episcopalian? And was it lay or did you take religious orders in the same way that some Franciscan monks do? We're in the Catholic tradition, the Franciscans that I joined with. We're essentially a fraternity, and some of us are ordained to the priesthood. So the, the fundamental plan, so to speak, of the Franciscan life is to live a celibate life in obedience to the needs of those around you with simplicity and no personal ownership of property. 
but it's all founded on this notion of being in fraternity. And one of the nice things about being a Franciscan is no matter where I travel in the world, I could always find a place to stay. And I, it was, it's an international global fraternity, even though we're organized into more local uh, provinces and so forth. And as opposed to structuring as a hierarchy, it's structured as a universal global fraternity. And I was a brother in that fraternity. I did not study and become ordained to be a minister as a priest in the Catholic Church. So to be clear, you went to medical school while you were a Franciscan lay brother. Mm -hmm. Did you already have in mind that you would like to serve internationally as a doctor? I did. And that, I think, rose out of, you know, a deep belief in the brotherhood of all of us human beings living on the planet and a belief in a creator who is loving. This loving creator is the origin of our human family, our human actual fraternity as well. It was a mystery to me that people were living in such different circumstances. So me being born in the most, if not the most economically advanced or generous economies in the world, could relate to people in other areas of the world with experiences even of abject poverty and famine. I didn't understand, I guess I still don't understand, how one loving creator is the father creator for all of humanity with these wide differences of sort of social economic life circumstances. That would be a reason for me to say I want to serve on an international ministry in order to experience across those walls that separated us. And I was given permission to do that. In preparation for that, between my first and second year of medical school, I was given permission to visit in the Amazon River Valley. It's really more of a plain than a valley, but because there was a Franciscan uh, ministry there on the Amazon River called Esperanza, which in Portuguese means hope. So I visited for three months to see how the work was being done, how the vaccinations were being distributed, and it confirmed that that was a desire, that I wanted to live that lifestyle and continue my medical training, my medical education. When it came time to choose a residency, I chose to study pediatrics. Part of that, a big part of why I chose pediatrics is because the majority of the world is youthful. Major population, the proportions are mostly children. So it made sense that pediatrics would be a general practice that would be oriented towards the largest proportion of the population that I could be visiting if I were working internationally. So I studied pediatrics, and during the course of my pediatrics, I was able to go and start my ministry in Zaire, where the province, the Franciscan group I was living with, were aiding the establishment of an indigenous, a sort of an African province of Franciscans. And so I was going to go and join that work to help for the creation and establishment of a new Franciscan entity, what we call provinces, in the middle of Africa, in a country that was at the time called Zaire. Mark, are you still a Franciscan brother? And if so, what are the vows that you make as a lay Franciscan brother? I have two dear friends here, and Lou and Anne are both Franciscan, lay Franciscans here. They both do wonderful work. I've connected with them through peace work. And so I understand that you don't have all of the same vows that you take when you're actually pledging as a priest. 
No, I'm not a member of the order. I think what you're referring to is called the third order uh, or the lay Franciscans. My membership would be in my heart, and it was part of my early formation. 25 years of my life living closely with the Franciscans, that's deep in my heart, but I have no ongoing formal connection. And are you still Catholic? I guess technically I am. I'm not very practicing. I think that the response of my Roman Catholic tradition to pedophilia and the clericalism that's demonstrated in the Roman Catholic tradition makes it hard for me to find a community that I'm able to resonate with. There is a community that's a little bit of a distance from where I live in Winona, Minnesota. It's really a renegade community uh, led by uh, a woman priest that if I was in the neighborhood, it would be very easy for me to participate with. Unfortunately, the authoritarian clerical response that the Roman Catholic tradition has shown towards this grave evil of pedophilia has caused a great deal of difficulty for me to show active membership. Your time in Zaire, I would love to drill in on because I got some really valuable life lessons from living in Togo for the two years when I was there with the Peace Corps. What did you gain from your time in Zaire, which people would now know as the Congo? The most important message I learned was that it's not that hard to live a full, thriving human life. And I have to explain what I mean by that. But when I went to Africa, I carried with me a lot of idealism. That was a motivator. And I, a little bit facetiously, allude to that as sort of an Albert Schweitzerism, you know, this notion of being a hero. And that attitude carries a lot of obligation with it to be continuously on duty. What I realized is um, the years got very burdensome. It was in the time that Mobutu Siso Siko, who was the dictator, eventually died, I think, in 92 or 93. And the country's governance fell into a great deal of disorder. There became essentially a civil war in military activities and roving militias. And so I was experiencing that kind of life. So it became important for me to understand, well, what does it mean to live a fundamentally healthful, thriving human life. And I regarded my neighbors, the Africans living in this place that I was living at the time called Lukafu. Their standard of living would be very constrained by you know, our perceptions from Western American economic standards. They essentially had adobe homes, you know, adobe bricks. Sometimes they would be fire-baked, but a lot of times just sun-dried with uh, simple structures, sometimes even a thatch roof. Sometimes they were able to apply a corrugated steel roof. They were agricultural for the most part. And what was necessary in that lifestyle and that economic reality was to have a place that was secure for my family to sleep in and to call home. It was necessary to experience some security of nutrition. And if it was a good harvest, then they would have it for the next year and it was necessary to have time to waste for my friends, visiting my friends and neighbors, and to continuously maintain that network of relationships that's so important to us as human beings. 
And I would, I would add on another quality too, and that is the opportunity to provide for children so that they can become mature adults, you know, to become educated, to become socialized, to become able to carry on the work of the next generation. And if a family finds those opportunities, then we wouldn't recognize ourselves as being poor. We would call ourselves, I'm living a full, thriving human life. And so some of the things that Americans in our society that we anguish over achieving and accomplishing, they're not necessary. And I think in the context of making that recognition, it became apparent to me that I didn't need to continue living my life in Africa. I could let go of that obligation that I probably carried there to be an Albert, Albert Swartzian type of a hero to say, I think it's important to seek living a thriving life. One of the things that I learned in my time in Togo in the Peace Corps was how much closer people are to one another, how much more community connection there is there than in the United States. My impression is that in the United States, our possessions and our money separate us, while the lack that people have in the places where I experience, the village where I live in Togo, because people didn't have anything, they shared everything. That's the only way that people survived. You're a doctor. I mean, in the United States, people think of doctors as people with lots of dough. How does money play into your views, your values of how the world connects, of what we do for community, how we build or don't build community? So I've been reflecting on money recently. It's interesting that you ask that. I've been finding myself discovering that it's something like, in some ways, like language that our use of money is a tool and an instrument for showing our values. Money is not a thing in the sense that it has any intrinsic worth at all. It only has a value within the context of that shared frame of reference of values and desire to work together. We as human beings are most successful as a species because of our ability to share our intentions to have shared intentionality, so to speak, and to work together to achieve those goals together. If it weren't for that, we would not be a successful species. I and mean, we were the most successful on the planet from that perspective. Language serves that characteristic that we have, that socializing characteristic. It serves it as our most important tool. And I think that our monetary system also serves in that role. But it's not at all an end of itself. It's very much just a means that we use. We can lose sight because we have an other side to our human spirit, which is the desire for survival as individuals. And so these two realities in our, in our lives are at play. And these, this plays into my desire to work in the political sphere because I see that the people I live with are sharing these two trends I call them the two sides of the coin for um, our ability to govern ourselves. And we govern ourselves as a way of doing the things together that we can't do as individuals. But there's always a tension between the desire to sort of survive and save myself or save my immediate circle and that need to capitalize on that ability as human beings to collaborate and to create things by shared intentionality. So those two things are happening all the time. And they criticize one another. 
So that individual spirit criticizes the collaborative spirit by calling it the S word. You're just a bunch of socialists. Those who are feeling more of the urge of collaborative work criticize that greediness of the individualism that um, is destroying our ability to work together. So that's what I see as the work of a politician, is to go into that fray and try to sort out how best we can marry those two trends that we have in our human spirit in the political arena. I think that politicians learn to speak in sound bites. And you do not seem a soundbite type of guy. You seem, I mean, soundbites completely ignore so much of meaning. They try and distill it down to a stark caricature of meaning. And I have a feeling that would be antithetical to your soul to just try and put it in a forward motto. How much is that uncomfortable for you as you go into the political world? Well, I think it's it's the most immediate criticism that people offer me. You, you cannot be a politician because you can't use sound bites. I spent a year advocating very aggressively, very uh, determined for Medicare for All. And people would say, oh, Medicare for All, that's a bad name because it immediately hooks. Some, either some people are for it or some people against it. You always hook these sort of fear responses with these sharp phrases. Either you're on board or you're off board. You turn it into a binary decision. When I was working for the advocating for sort of issues campaigning for single-payer health care, I would use the phrase Medicare for all because that's the bumper sticker. And then people would respond to me, that's a bad name. It should be something else. And the reason that it would be bad is because they hook it to some sort of emotional reaction that's either for or against Every one of those three-word phrases always has that hook. And so I'd say, okay, we won't call it Medicare for All. We'll call it single-payer, publicly funded, universal, comprehensive health insurance on a national plane. <laughs> I can't put that on a bumper sticker. Um, another friend of mine who I've relied upon to try to learn a little bit about the political life, he told me that's one of the hardest things about being in the political arena is to come up with a statement of fresh ideas that doesn't become a cliché. And as soon as it becomes a cliche, then it's you're either it gets trapped into that binary for or against. I'm for it or I'm against it. Short circuits our ability to go deeper. You know, there's one thing I should clarify before we go on. Your name is Mark Newman. You were born in 1954 when so many boys were named Mark. So there's a whole lot of us Marks from that time. There is another Mark who served in Congress in Wisconsin. Mark Newman. He was Mark W. Newman, Mark William Newman. And you're Mark A. Newman. What's your A? Allen. A-L-L-E-N? That's right. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Is that your middle name? <laughs> I, grew, I grew up as Mark Allen Judkins. So, yes, it, talk about product of our times. Right. The Mark Newman who served in Congress in the 90s, he was Republican, and you're running on the Democratic primary against Ron Kind. Do you have to deal with people mistaking you for the other, or what's that like? Uh, one of my volunteers for the campaign mentioned to me that she's been reaching out to some folks and she's been learning. Well, some people are saying that, oh, with the early voting, we've, we've already voted for Mark. We've already voted for Mark, you know, so she's getting that kind of feedback. And then she said one of one of the people she contacted says, oh, I couldn't vote for him. That's that guy from Janesville. 
So um, it, it is interesting. One of my pleasantries is to say, well, at least after this whole year of working on this campaign, I hope that when people Google Mark Newman, my campaign might come first before Mark W. Newman's work in Congress. But, you know, how do you build your name up higher on the Google algorithm? But, yeah, it's, you know, that's, that's just the reality of life in the public sphere. People make connections that way. So I just have to wonder, back when I was in high school, I thought, though, about politicians. I realized that it was really hard for politicians to do good in the world. I thought if there was good to be done in the world, it would probably be done by a comedian, that they could do it better. You know, a Robin Williams can do better for the world than many politicians could, than a Bill Clinton. Now, I don't think that's necessarily true, but it's a long road to hoe because you are attempting to represent a number of people a number of people who disagree with you or who have different values or where you haven't found common ground yet. Could you talk about what it's like? If I understand you correctly, I think that probably your value is to respect every person. And I think that when you have very radically different viewpoints, that can be a real challenge. So how do you think of yourself as working into a position where you would represent people of a wide range of beliefs? How easy or hard is that going to be for someone like Mark A. Newman? One evening I was invited and I was able to sit in on a, a gathering here in La Crosse. Some students had invited this label right-wing radio personality on campus and he was producing all of these hardcore arguments that we can hear on right-wing radio. And I remember how the students reacted, that they weren't engaged into it a blatant argument with this individual, but I found them pretty much just wanting to understand where, where the, the personality was coming from. They wanted to understand I felt like the person. And I was amazed at that. I said, these are wonderful young people who are not allowing themselves to be engaged into useless argument. That experience, to me, represents what we need to introduce into our political sphere, that fundamentally what we want is not tolerance, or first, we fundamentally don't want to have a bunch of barriers and walls. And tolerance is sort of a weak form of having barriers. But what we want to achieve is hospitality. For me, that means that I recognize other people's traditions, other people's identity as being different than mine, but recognizing that it's very authentic and it is a very important representation of human tradition and human life. And so my desire becomes, I want to know you. I want to understand it. And I recognize that mine is different, but together we are completing the picture of what it means to be a human being living on, on planet Earth. And that that's the fundamental engagement for me in this, the political sphere. If I can't have that exchange, that belief, that trust in the other, then it becomes an issue of continuously having battles, of trying to prove right or wrong. And we all believe when we make our decisions that we are right. We don't make decisions to make bad decisions and immoral decisions. When we make decisions, we believe that we're making the correct moral choice. And so screaming at somebody for being immoral doesn't mean anything to that person. It's important to approach the other as someone who is struggling, just like I'm struggling, to make good choices. 
and that we have to start with that basis of hospitality. Please come into my home, come into my space, and let's share tea together. I will learn from you, and if you're interested in me, you can learn from me. Together, we will expand the experience of human life on planet Earth. So that's the way I approach it. I think that when we see ourselves as being engaged in battles, us against them, these battles never get won. They're never won or lost. They're always just displaced. They go somewhere else. A battle rages for a while. One of the sides just gets tired of playing and repositions the battle in a different arena. And as long as we continue to engage in those kinds of binary us-against-them battles, we are not doing the work that we could achieve as a humanity caring for the good of ourselves, the good of the community. As Paul Wellstone said, we all do better when we all do better. And that's essential truth to who we are as human beings, that in order to create thriving human life, we create thriving human community. We do that when we create good governance. And I believe that the experiment that the American tradition initiated 250 years ago with representative democracy, it's a good effort and it's a good tradition that should be carried on. This democracy that we strive for is never achieved. It's never accomplished. It's never something that we have in hand. It's really an aspiration that we share. We want to take the work of that aspiring desire for self-representation and self-governance that we received from those who've gone before us. We want to do our best to apply it to our own age and our own issues and transfer it, hand it off to the next generation, hopefully healthier, stronger and healthier than what we could have received from those who've gone before. So that's our work today. And folks, we're going to hear more from Mark A. Newman in just a moment. I wanted to remind you, you are listening to Spirit in Action. NorthernSpiritRadio.org is our website. And our objective is to raise up world healing people, inspiration, education, so that we can all make this world a better place together. I like the quote that you used, Mark, from Paul Wellstone. We all do better when we all do better. It's a viewpoint that is not universally shared. But you will find plenty of that on the northernspiritradio.org website, both our Song of the Soul and our Spirit in Action programs. You'll find all of our guests of the last 15 years and links to them. We have a link to today's guest, who is Mark Newman, his website, marknewmanforcongress.com. I have you here not because you're a politician or an aspiring politician, but because I see you as raising up world healing work. And that's what's important to me on this program. Politics plays an important role as an instrument in that, but it is not the objective from my point of view. So on our site, you'll find links to all of our guests of the last 15 years. You'll find a place where you can post comments. And please comment on and rate programs so that we hear your voice as well. I do believe so vitally important that we raise up all voices. And so please, you can do your piece by commenting and giving us information and direction and feedback. That's all very important. And I do listen. 
please also support your local community radio station. Down in the area of La Crosse, there's WDRT. I've been proud to be on that station for more than 10 years, 12 years, I think it's been. We've been on that station and WHYS here in Eau Claire and a total of 40 stations or so nationwide who carry our programs. So please support them. We need alternative voices. And that's one of the reasons that Mark A. Newman is here today, because it's a voice that's too seldom heard. And we need to raise that up. So, Mark, back into things. One of the things I was wondering about as you were talking about the objective and communication, connecting with the other, the people we define as other, which is part of the problem in and itself. I was raised hearing many times that it's more important how you play the game than whether you win or lose. But it seems really, really clear to me. I, I know a number of people who are supporters of President Trump who seem to neglect that. The thing that they've been concerned about is they've got a win for the kind of nominee they want on the Supreme Court or that there is a tax decision that's beneficial to them, that winning was the important thing and that how the game was played was not relevant. And I think that's part of the hard decision you face when you go into politics. How do you imagine you can deal with people whose only objective is winning and losing? The origin of my desire to become more politically engaged comes from the moment I listened to President Trump's American Carnage speech that he gave at his inauguration in 2017. And I did not like that description that he offered and decided that I still had some years left in my bones and that I wanted to become more politically engaged so that I could do what you were just describing, become more engaged in the healing of my community. So that being my intention, I had a lot to learn. And one of the things that was before me immediately was my disdain for the political politician's life. There was this feeling that I had that people who engage in that work are compromised and possibly engaged in fraud and continuously being expected to operate in underhanded ways. I found myself wanting, being a bit of a shame to say, yeah, I think I want to become more politically engaged. But saying that seemed dirty. It's a strong word, but it was, there was part of that in my heart. And I have to admit, over the last three years of working in the political arena, so to speak, I've been converted, I think. I don't feel that way anymore. I think that people who engage in this work are real human beings dealing with real troubles, and sometimes they you know, make mistakes, but oftentimes they're quite alone. They're feeling alone. So it's not hard for me to say that I would like to be politically engaged. But some, if someone would identify me as being a politician, I would say, yes, I am. I'm trying to be. And your question was, how do you deal with that we have to win at all cost attitude? My answer to that is, as a politician, I have only one thing that I can really offer to people, and that is my authenticity. The only thing of real value that I can offer to people is to be as honest and as authentic person as I can, to bring into the conversation that wealth of concern that I have for the good of myself and others, and to be willing to forego the possibility of winning say, if I don't win the discussion, it's okay. We have to bring only what we have is our authenticity. If people sense that, 
they may choose you to be their representative. And then you try to do that as best you can. And if they don't sense it, so be it. That's all I got. I can't fake it or make it up. There is a lot of that activity that goes on. There's a lot of social engineering that goes into campaigning where you try to trick people into believing stuff that is made up. But that undermines that undermines our ability to govern ourselves. And I uh, appreciate on um, local governance, for example, our representatives on city council and our representative supervisors on county level. Those folks can be very authentic in their concerns. I love that experience of local governance and wish that we would be able to carry that same experience of local governance into the higher echelon, so to speak, of our structure of governance as a nation. On your website, in issues that you're concerned about, you mentioned you're a believer in democracy, right? Mm -hmm. In practical terms, what does that mean about how our government should work? I would say that probably every person who runs for office will say, I believe in democracy. But what does that mean in terms of what we should do or what we should do differently? We have a representative democracy where we elect people to help make policy, to determine statutes and legislation. And we hire those people to do that work. And I was at a conference once that we were presenting on single-payer health care. And after about a 90-minute exchange of ideas with a panel of three people and an audience of about 30 or 40 people, one of the audience participants said, boy, that is so complex. Uh, you know, the, the, all of the values and the considerations that go into developing a single-payer health care system. And I said, you are right. But that's the good fortune of having a representative democracy because as citizens, our job is not to formulate that policy. Our job as citizens is to determine in our hearts and in our conversation where we want the policy to end up. And what we want is a single payer. In single payers, we want to have good quality health care available to all people when we need it without a hassle. So those 15 words is... That's our work as citizens. Now, we hand that off to our representatives who have all kinds of resources. They have experts that they can call upon. They have people who can study these issues profoundly and to achieve a policy that represents the values of the people. I think that the structure of our democracy is that those who are elected to formulate this common expectations of behavior in our community, policies and statutes and legislation and laws, the people that we elect to make that work happen, to achieve the accomplishment of that work, need to start with an appreciation of the identity of the people they represent. Who are we as a community? What is the origin of our traditions and what are our shared identity in Western Wisconsin in the Driftless region? Who are the small sub-communities and how do we integrate together in our regional identity? We take that identity in order to discover what are our values. It's from our shared identity that we also recognize what our values are. And those values then need to be captured, so to speak, codified into shared behavior, expectations of behavior that we call statutes. And so it's the work of the legislator to work hard to have a deep understanding of our identity as a community, the values that are found within that identity, and to turn those into legislation that becomes our law of the land. 
too often we start backwards. We just start bickering over what is the going to be the legislation. And we have these petty fights that go on all the time. And so we're kind of in a vacuum with these fecious, <laughs> these false arguments because we haven't rooted them in where they need to be rooted. I too, when I have discussions, I try and start from values, from that overview and work forward. So certainly when you talk about supporting our democracy, that makes sense to me. How do we get there? There are specific aspects of it that I have felt degrading our democracy, our representative democracy. And one of them is campaign finance where you can spend any amount of money to get what you want, right? And essentially that turns into votes. So how do you feel about campaign finance and how have you dealt with it in terms of your primary run against Ron Kind? One of the important characteristics of my efforts as a politician is to not engage in that. And so it does take a certain amount of financial resources to try to spread a message and to make it available in conversation to other people. But we're depending only on small contributions from individuals who believe that it's worthwhile trying to communicate this message. I think that campaigns should be an opportunity for the electorate to meet candidates so that they can do what is equivalent of a job interview. And because they're going to pick somebody to do some work for the community, a public good. And so they have to have an opportunity to meet the candidates and to understand what makes them tick, so to speak, and say, yeah, I like that guy. He speaks, he speaks well. I understand a little bit about where he's coming from. I'm going to vote for that person. That is a public work. And so it should be financed as a public good. And we should have public financing for achieving the work of campaigning in that regard. Unfortunately, we turn our campaigning oftentimes into this battle of social engineering, where we use sophisticated campaigns of marketing to try to gain one advantage over another. And too often, as I think people who are trained as marketers know, you can trick people into doing things that in the end, they say, boy, that wasn't so smart. And of course, people are doing that all the time when they're fishing on the internet trying to get your social security number. They're trying to trick you into giving them your social security number. Well, that's just an example of social engineering and using marketing ploys. But when we base our campaigning on that, it's a distortion of what it could be. And the um, use of money in campaigning is an opportunity for people with power and huge resources to have an advantage in the discussion ultimately could undermine it. It could, in the end, leave us without anything to hand on to the next generation. And what I mean by that is we have more and more concentration of power into fewer and fewer hands in our economy. And that's not just our economy. It happens in every economy until you get a revolution and then a flattening of the distribution of resources. But we have more and more resources, more and more power being concentrated into fewer and fewer hands And this disparity of wealth undermines the necessary egalitarian exchange and relationship between the citizens so that we could actually lose our democracy and and it could uh, devolve into an oligarchy, which is the biggest threat that I experience and probably the major reason that I've decided that I just need to be as involved as I can in this conversation. And I appreciate you stepping out to do that work. I mean, I think it would be a lot more comfortable for Mark A. Newman to be staying at home 
I have a feeling that politicians, to some degree, have to give up a lot of their private life. What have you been willing to give up in order to try and serve the public? I I really don't think it's a, a job that calls to people who want to have a whole life, if you know what I mean. <laughs> you know, Mark, I have to consider at this point in my life, having entered sort of the traditional retirement age, that one of the answers to the why, for me personally, for being engaged as I try to be in political conversation, is that I don't want to be 10 years older and feel even less able to sort of get out there and participate and look back and say, God, I wish I had done more when I was younger. In other words, what I mean by that, I can't imagine assuming a lifestyle of leisure that retirement might allow somebody in order to say, boy, now I'm not 66 anymore, I'm 76, and I know that I need my eight hours of sleep or I can't get through the day. But at that juncture of my life, I say, gosh, I wish I had used more of my the energy that was available to me when I was a bit younger to do a better job of handing on to the next generation, a world that's a little easier, a little better for the next generation. One of the issues that's on your website, and that is marknewmanforcongress.com, one of the issues that you address on there is income inequality and you support, for instance, a $15 minimum wage. One thing I didn't see anything about was taxation. I have my own opinions about this. Of course, I have my opinions as a relatively poor person, right? Yeah. But again, I've told you I'm Quaker. Simplicity is one of the things that I think enhances our life and the lives of those around us. I think that when people build up a million or two dollars for themselves, I think that they probably are not doing well for their connection to humans. And I'm not saying that every rich person is a bad person, not at all. But I'm wondering if there's anything you're willing to say, and I realize this can be very problematic for someone running for a political office, about taxation and how we should be doing that. Taxation is done, in my mind, primarily to preserve the opportunity for democracy. So I was just describing how in an economy, we have a tendency for those who have a little bit of wealth, a little bit of power, to be able to accumulate more wealth and more power more rapidly than those who don't. And similar to that game of risk that you and I may have played in our youth, the first thing you wanted to do was to build up a center of power, because once you get that center of power, you can accumulate more power and take the game over. Same way in Monopoly, by the way. But anyway, that phenomena is not just reserved to us in the United States. It is just a normal phenomena of human economy. That if you have a small amount of wealth, you can get richer quicker than someone who doesn't. Another way of saying it is it costs an awful lot to be poor because when you're economically disadvantaged, you don't have those opportunities. And so it becomes even more expensive to find a good source of nutrition and so forth. That being the case, how are we going to respond to that reality in our society? Most countries come up with a solution. Our country did up until the last few decades, and we can do this through taxation. So we need an instrument to counterbalance that likelihood that those who are wealthy can get more wealthy more quickly than those who don't. That counterbalance we do through taxation. And we employ a progressive formulation so that if you have a lot of power, 
you need to have a heavy burden of taxation to counterbalance that advantage. And if you have a medium amount of power, well, then you have a lower proportion of taxation. We should have a robust inheritance tax so that it's not possible to build up uh, family dynasties of wealth and power. And we should have a capital gains tax that is meaningful because, honestly, earning money off of shifting coins around on the table is not really contributing a lot of good to our society. And there's no reason that we shouldn't be able to have a decent capital gains taxation system. So I guess me saying that means that I would be, as a politician, a target of a lot of people who disagree with that attitude. But we oftentimes fall into the argument of we need to tax people in order to pay for programs. In this case, we don't need to tax for the sake of having resources to distribute in programs because that turns us into an us-against-them sort of mentality. I don't need to pay for them. I don't need that advantage. Why do I have to pay for it? And so automatically the argument just devolves into foolishness. But the real need is to do like many of the, our European compatriots across the Atlantic Ocean. They have very progressive 70%, 90% levels of income tax. And the United States used to have that in times past. But because of the process of campaign financing that we have to struggle with in this country, those who had more money could contribute to campaigns in a way that pushed them into these marketing battles that then uh, resulted in those who complied to that program giving a reward to those who paid for their campaign and favorable legislative decisions and so forth. So we're in a struggle. That's what we're dealing with today. In order to respond to the risk of oligarchy displacing democracy, while we still have that opportunity as a democracy, we need to protect the future of this form of government for ourselves and for those who follow us. There's just one more thing I wanted to address with you, Mark, before we leave Spirit in Action today, and that is feelings about the climate crisis. I've been meeting the last couple of weeks with some people from Extinction Rebellion. I figure as a doctor, you have a pretty good grasp on science, and that's something that's been too little applied in the public sphere these days. Many cities, uh, Eau Claire, for instance, has declared uh, as it's a resolution that says we're going to be carbon neutral by 2050. What Extinction Rebellion says is that's way too late. If we do that, that will be literally billions of people will die in addition to many hundreds of thousands, millions of species will die if we go that slowly. So what's your viewpoint on the climate crisis and what needs to be done about it? One of the reasons that I'm campaigning in a federal election campaign is that one of the major issues is my nation, my country's stance in response to the international and global climate emergency that we as a humanity are facing. That many decisions that have to be made need to be made on an international plane. Um, there are many good things that have to happen locally, but ultimately I think the United States should be a leader, should be on the vanguard, should be engaging as a leader in the community of nations to face what is international crisis that is evolving as we watch. 
I heard once a political commentator say that governments are not well known for being proactive. Governments tend to be reactive, to wait sort of until things sort of get into a position where there's really no choice anymore, and then they act. And as a physician practicing in critical care pediatrics, would have been the highest form of malpractice to be at the bedside of an extremely ill child or injured child and to turn to the child's mother and father and say, you know, we're going to see where this ends up and um, we'll see how this works out. And, you know, it might be okay. What I would have to do as a physician would be to use whatever intelligence I can garner whatever experience I've had to try to project out what the likely outcomes could be, the consequences, and to come up with a plan A, a plan B, a plan C of treatment protocol, a treatment intervention. And I had to offer that to the family and say, these are the things that I'm understanding. These are the possible responses we can make and the potential outcomes that could happen. That very proactive, I have to get, I would call it feeling like I could get in front of the wave. I needed to get in front of the wave of danger that was affecting my patient. And it was an emotional experience. I'm, I'm still not there. I'm not on the front of this wave. And I think it's that same type of anguish that we need to carry with us into the international community. We need to get in front of the wave. Your friends are correct. We're, we're not going back. If we could stop warming gas emissions right now, turn CO2 emissions to zero, there's already changes happening that are going to continue to evolve. There's going to be not just millions or hundreds of millions of people migrating. Probably the National Institute of Science came with a study recently of billions of people displacing from regions where they can no longer live. That form of human migration is going to be a huge geopolitical experience of, of stress beyond us to even imagine today. But we need to start to formulate the structures of management and governance on a world level that the United States needs to be on the vanguard of leading. These things are going to happen for centuries. Human beings who will look back to 2020 and say, what were they thinking back then? Because we have a burden that we need to meet today that people two, three, four, five generations from now are going to look back and say, they really dropped the ball. They just stayed in their little holes now we've left a huge amount of disorder and unnecessary pain and unnecessary burden for generations that will follow. The longer we wait, the worse it makes the outcome. These things are going to happen. The longer we take for making a more active, aggressive response, it doesn't mean that it won't or will happen. It's going to. It's just how bad it's going to be for those who follow. And hopefully, if we have a strong Congress willing to take steps that are aggressive, I think of it as us heading for the edge of a cliff. Some people are saying we don't have to put on the brake now because that'll make us later getting to where we want to go. <laughs> but if people don't put on the brake well ahead of time, it's going to be too late. And when you're over the cliff, it's useless. You're just going to provide for extinction. That's why I think the way that Extinction Rebellion addresses this is exactly right. We need to do it now. Their actual claim is that by 2025, the U.S. has to be carbon neutral. Most people would say that's impossible. It's obviously not possible. It might be painful. It might be drastic, but it's not impossible. So 
from the science that you've read about it, what kind of viewpoint do you think is what is possible and necessary? It all depends on leadership. I mean, that's the hardest part of doing these projections. You know, climate scientists will look and say, you know, they can look at one, two, ten scenarios. And the hardest part of what they predict is the response of human beings. What will be their response? If human beings respond this way, the climate will end up there in 20, 40, 50 years. If human beings respond this way, it would be this way. So those predictions, those models that climate scientists can make, the greatest degree of uncertainty comes from the response that human beings will make in the context of those models. You know, the other parts of our environment rely upon more reliable, sort of determined reactivity. You know, animals tend to follow so-called instincts. But as we talked about a lot earlier, the part that human beings, one thing that makes us different is that we are able to have shared intentionality. We are able to do things together for a common purpose in a way that no other species can do. But that depends on leadership. And if you don't have the leadership, then we just have a huge amount of sort of everybody from him or herself disorder. So I think that in response to your question, it all depends on good, strong, serving leadership. And without that, it's just going to be worse. With that said, I have to say how much I appreciate your willingness to give up the comfort of your retirement age where you theoretically (laughs) could be kicking back. It it doesn't seem that running as a candidate for place in the House of Representatives is kicking back by my definition at all. To be able to give that extra with a good conscience so that when you're 76, 10 years from now, that you can actually say, I did what I needed to do. I did what I could. That's a valiant motive. I do hope that your candidacy and the candidacy of so many other people across the country lead to a future for this country, which both upholds democracy, to which we always have aspired, and the health and well-being of our children and the other species, on which we depend for that matter. So I find in so many ways that this calling that you're following right now is a noble calling, and I appreciate you for doing that and for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. And again, folks, Mark A. Newman is running in the primary against Ron Kind for the House of Representatives. His website is newmanforcongress.com. God bless you in your work. Go forward and make this world a better place. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you for your engagement on this communication and media. Thank you. Links, as I said, folks, are on northernspiritradio.org. We'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh